We'll invite you to take your Bibles this morning uh, first to the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 2. We'll read a brief passage there and then we'll go back to the book of Acts. First Corinthians 2, we're going to read the first five verses. The Word of God says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And then taking our Bibles back to the book of uh, Acts in chapter 18. Beginning of verse 1, the Bible says, After this, this, I'll try again. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Saturday and trying, every Sabbath, and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles." Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus, Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the, vision by, in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And we'll trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his word, and we'll leave it there for this morning. 
Just to give you a recap of the Macedonian mission, which had begun in Philippi, they had begun there in the most respected city in Macedonia, a population of five to 10,000 people. Lydia, the jailer, and their households had believed and were baptized, but Paul and Silas had been arrested, beaten, imprisoned, and then freed the following morning and are encouraged to leave quickly. So they traveled to Thessalonica, which is the capital of Macedonia, with some 100,000 in population. Paul and Silas reasoned in the synagogue, and some Jews and a large number of God-fearing Greeks believe and join Paul. But again, they're opposed by a mob of Jews, and they're forced to flee to Berea. And Paul, greatly concerned for the Thessalonian believers, sent Timothy to see how they're doing and later received word back through Timothy of their strong Christian faith and love. You can read about that in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 to 6. Arriving in Berea, Paul and Silas again reason with eager Jews in the synagogue who daily search the scriptures to see if Paul's words are true. Again, the Jews and Greeks pursue Paul from Thessalonica to Berea. Timothy and Silas remain, but Paul leaves and heads for Athens. And Athens is the city of learning and philosophy and idolatry. And arriving, we saw last week how his spirit was provoked within him by the multitudes of idols. And so he reasoned with the Jews and the Greeks in the synagogue and the marketplaces He conversed with philosophers in the marketplace who take him to the Areopagus, where Paul proclaimed the unknown God. I'm smiling because uh, I was told it's Areopagus, and then I had to ask Chris Aranias, how do you pronounce that word? And he said, no, 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 it's Aruspagus. Is that close? Aruspagus. There we go. I'm, I'm not Greek. I just try. Here we go. So whenever I see that word now, I stumble because it, my mind plays tricks on me. There we go. Paul is there. He proclaims the unknown God to them. But receiving a cool response with only a few believing and joining him, Paul again leaves and travels on his own to Corinth. It's a city of great commerce and gross sexual immorality. It was the Roman seat of the government for the southern Greece, Nicaea. It was known for its wealth, its luxury, the immorality of its people, who were a mix of Romans and Greeks and Jews. Its population is estimated to range between, I hear two different numbers in my research, as low as 200,000 and as much as 700,000. So it was a lot of people, however many it were. It's the largest city of all that Paul has gone to minister in. And Paul describes his own state of mind at his arrival in those verses we read in uh, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 3, that he was with them in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Why was that his state of mind? That's a thought that just kept rattling through my head as I studied through the week. Some commentators suggest it was due to the discouraging circumstances of the Macedonian mission thus far. He'd been unjustly beaten for his witness in Philippi. He'd been forced to leave Philippi, then Thessalonica, then Berea. He'd been separated from his traveling companions. Here he is being faithful in gospel ministry, starting in the Jewish synagogues, moving toward ministry in the Gentiles, only to be repeatedly harassed by the Jews who themselves rejected the message of the gospel. Perhaps 
His state of mind was because he couldn't yet see the fruit of his past labors as he begun, or he's about to begin, yet another gospel campaign in the biggest city of all that he'd ever been in. Perhaps he was mindful of the gross sexual immorality amongst those whom he was going to minister to in Corinth. The temple to Aphrodite on the Acre Corinth was served by 1,000-plus prostitutes or sex slave priestesses. To Corinthianize was a term in that era which meant to be morally degraded. Perhaps he was in physical pain as a consequence of that severe beating he had received not that long ago. Perhaps it was a seemingly overwhelming task that lay before him to go into this city filled with wickedness and idolatry and sexual immorality and big business, and it struck fear into his heart. In any case, we know he was afraid because the Lord mentioned to him in his vision to to Paul. He refers to his fear. As we work our way through our text, we will see that he did continue. He endured because of the Lord's encouragement to him. Brothers and sisters, I'm sure that for some of us here today, those same feelings of weakness, of fear, of trembling, of discouragement, of loneliness are a part of some of our lives, and we're living with them, and in some cases trying to minister while enduring them. And the question is, how do we continue in this Christian life and ministry when we're plagued by those sorts of troubles? They can be debilitating. To share some of my own struggle, I used to wrestle a lot, uh, especially in Canada, with depression. Uh, Times when I would sit in our bedroom with the lights off under a black cloud that just wouldn't lift. So how do we do it? How do we continue in this Christian life and ministry when we're plagued by those sorts of troubles? What I want to do this morning is unpack the encouragement that he received from Christ in terms of the promises and the vision and his own words in 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5. I want us to see, all of us, how we're to continue in life and ministry with three great encouragements. Number one, knowing the person of Christ and him crucified. Secondly, knowing the protection of Christ. And thirdly, knowing the presence of Christ. So remembering what we said a few moments ago, that Paul's state of mind when he arrived in Corinth and the possible reasons why. One thing that just comes to mind as I was meditating and thinking about Paul and all he was going through was that he was not a super spiritual type person who never became discouraged. He was always dealing with everything with just a smile and ongoing confidence. He struggled. He wrestled. He dealt with discouragement and doubts and fears. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians 12, a little more in detail. He knew what it was to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He knew what it was to minister in sorrow and difficulty and struggle. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we may never have been beaten for our faith. At least not yet. We may never have had to flee from city to city due to mobs of fanatical Jews or other anti-Christians chasing us. But I'm sure that his situation, his state of mind, as he described it, could describe some of ours here today. For some of us who have faithfully worked and witnessed to unbelieving men and women and workmates and fellow members, family members, sorry, and neighbors, only to reap their scorn, their sneers, their dismissal, and sometimes their aggressive refusal of the gospel. 
for some who with broken hearts and many tears have witnessed to unsaved family members desperately praying and hoping that they will believe the gospel and trust in Christ. For others, the difficult circumstances of living life in a postmodern, anti-Christian, ungodly world has left us feeling discouraged and downcast and disappointed and lonely and fearful. Well, you're not alone. I'm sure the question going through my mind is perhaps yours also. How do we continue? So what's the answer? I want us to see from our text in Acts 18 and 1 Corinthians 2 how Paul carried on and learned how we can carry on in life and ministry, whether it's full-time vocational ministry or as a faithful witness in a workplace, a home, or community, or maybe as those living under the weight of discouragement, we can carry on. Notice, by the way, that his state of mind did not stop him. He kept going. Even as he arrived and he teams up with Aquila and Priscilla, he's busy throughout the week working in a tent-making, leather-making, sorry, tent-making or leather-work shop. It's probably the same. And he goes in the weekends, in the Sabbath, and he's busy reasoning with the Jews. He's not stopping his ministry, even though he's struggling with these things. I sat in my study at home on Friday afternoon and meditated and thought about his situation, wondering just how he did so. And the answer the Lord gave me was first in Paul's words, which I had always applied to the content of his ministry and our ministry. But I believe there's an added element of encouragement for ministry and life, how we live this life in his words. So first of all, we endure. We carry on in laboring in ministry and life, knowing the person of Christ. And you can guess where that comes from. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, Paul describing his weak and fearful coming. This is what he says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the subject of our ministry. That's the message we preach, Right? But it's so much more than that. He didn't just say, for I determined to preach nothing but Christ and Him crucified. He says, I determined to know, to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Notice he was determined. He resolved. He made up his mind. He made a conclusive judgment that Jesus Christ and Him crucified would be the sole content of His knowledge, His focus, His thinking, and His ministry. Notice he determined to know Christ. How much Paul knew of Christ's recorded teaching and miracles and words and works is uncertain. Mark's gospel, which was the first to be written, was still four to six years away. This is before it was even written. Perhaps he had heard lots from the other apostles. Perhaps Christ himself had revealed much to him in his years in Tarsus after his conversion and before Barnabas came and collected him and brought him back to Syria and Antioch. But Paul certainly did have a comprehensive grasp of the Old Testament. He was a Pharisee. He would have committed great sections of the Old Testament to memory. He had an Old Testament knowledge of the person and work of Christ. Christ's deity and his royalty, Christ's humanity and his sufferings, Christ's resurrection and his subsequent glory. He would have seen that in the Old Testament text. It was all readily available to him. And brothers and sisters, consider for a moment what immense 
help and encouragement, the practice of determining to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified would have had to His weak and fearful and trembling heart and mind. It is the perfect elixir for the soul of any who are fearful. I mean, fearful or not, just step back for a second. It's the absolute, absolute perfect content for the study of the human heart. The human heart doing the studying of Him. That's Christ. Everything we need in this life to get us through this life is found in the person of Christ and Him crucified. But it's not just knowing information, facts, and theology about Christ. It's knowing Him. It's a living, active, intimate relationship. Paul would write to the Philippians from prison later on in his ministry. He would say, that I may know him. In other words, it was still his ongoing desire that he wanted to know Christ. Oh, brother and sister, is that the desire of your heart? Not just to know facts. I got sections in my reasonable sized library theology books you pile them up you could use them for a great side table and all those facts all that information in there doesn't mean that I know Christ the illiterate farmer who understands the gospel and spends time in faithful prayer and communion with Christ could know more of Christ than I could with all those books and brother and sister in Christ, it's got nothing to do with the amount of learning you do or don't have. It's a desire to know Him. It's a focus. It's a resolution that I will know Christ and Him crucified. Brother and sister in Christ, this morning, are you discouraged? Are you lonely and fearful? You feel weak in spirit. You feel like you're sitting under a dense gray fog of discouragement and doubt and loneliness. And you cannot seem to get out from underneath it. My one call to you is resolve, determine to know Christ. Put aside, push everything else away. And in prayerful meditation on Him in Scripture, resolve to know Him. Plead for more of Christ. Plead in your heart in prayer for more of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be satisfied with the mere saving knowledge of Christ, just the bare facts of the gospel. Resolve to know Him even more deeply and intimately than any married person knows their husband or their wife. As much as I love my wife, and I certainly do, I realize that that relationship, as great as it is, endures for a time. But my relationship with Christ endures for eternity. How much better to know Him. Brother and sister in Christ, study and meditate on the Scriptures which speak of Christ. Move from meditation on Scripture into prayer and communion with Christ. Listen, listen for a moment to some of the rich benefits of knowing Christ when you're in that circumstance. In any circumstance, really. Knowing both the all-knowing and all-powerful Christ is the perfect solution to fear. He knows every difficulty. He knows the unraveling of it. He knows every opposition that we will face. And He is able to overcome them all. Bar none. He knows all and He can deal with all that we face. 
knowing the always present Christ who is unhindered by the four walls of an empty house or a lonely hospital room or a prison cell or a workplace is a perfect solution to loneliness. The always present Christ outnumbers every opposition we face. Knowing the triumphant, victorious Christ who has conquered sin and death, who has defeated every enemy that we'll ever face, and even those we'll never see face to face, is a perfect solution for discouragement. No wonder, oh, I just wonder as he sat there in Corinth, maybe he was bent over the leather-working desk and he's working with those tools, shaping the leather, and he, as he was meditating on Christ, he suddenly realized, surrounded by Hundreds of thousands of people, pagan, ungodly, immoral, crazy people. He was the one in the majority, not them. Because Christ was with him. And he knew Christ. He knew the all-powerful Christ. But brothers and sisters... It's knowing the glory of his divine attributes and the reality of his perfect humanity that encourages us to continue despite the opposition. It encourages us with the sure knowledge that he has defeated our enemies, no matter how large they appear to us. But it's not just the person of Christ, it's also the work of Christ. Notice how Paul determined to know Christ and him crucified. Paul resolved to know and understand the results and benefits from the sufferings that Christ endured. You read through Romans and Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians. Read those letters. Soak up the rich depth of theological understanding that he had. But it wasn't just dry facts and knowledge and information and charts and paradigms. It was a real intimate knowledge with a real living Savior. And he understood the benefits of Christ crucified. Listen to some of them. Christ's suffering and death and resurrection were for our justification. You and I are declared righteous in God's sight. How? Why? Because Jesus died on a cross for you and for me. Christ's suffering and crucifixion were for our forgiveness of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And Christ shed his blood for our forgiveness of sin. Christ's sufferings and crucifixion were for our sanctification for our conformity to Christ, for our glorification. Paul also wrote that he longed to know the power of Christ's resurrection. What do you mean by that? That's in Philippians 3, about verse 11 or 12. What do you mean by that? I want to know was his desire, the power of God that raised Christ from dead. I want that to know that power working in me to make me a new creature in Christ, to transform me more and more and more into the image of Christ, to change me from the inside out. That's what he wanted. Ah, beloved, what greater treatment is there for our discouragement, our weakness and fear and trembling, than to know Christ and him crucified? Not only... Are we brought face to face with all that God is for us in the person of Christ, but we're moved away from an over-focus on ourselves, our work, our problems, to focus on Christ. Reality is, and I would argue that when I'm in the slough of despair, or the pit of discouragement, or the icy cold waters of fear, it's because in my thinking there's far too much of me, my world, and my circumstances are not nearly enough of Christ in my thinking. 
Maybe that's your situation too. Yeah. Perhaps, just maybe, that's at the root of the problem. So first of all, we endure knowing the person, the, the pre, yeah, the person of Christ. Now, I was going to take the Lord's words to Paul in verses 9 and 10 and take them in order. I am with you and no man will attack you, but I'm going to reverse the order simply because I want to finish with the presence of Christ near as we go to the Lord's table. So secondly, we endure knowing the protection of Christ. Look at our text. Let's read again. Chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. The Bible says, And the Lord said to Paul in a vision, in the night, by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Jesus commands Paul not to be afraid, to go on speaking, not to be silent. And his second explanation in verse 10 is, No man no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in the city. In these few words, Paul heard of the protection of Christ. We only need to look at the very next part of the story as the Jews bring Paul to Gallio to bring charge against him. But before he can even speak, he's just about to give his defense and Gallio cuts him off and dismisses the charges and throws them all out. Sadly, that meant that Sosthenes got beaten by the Jews. But after those events before Gallio, Luke records that he continued for many days longer. In total, Paul may have been in Corinth for as long as two years, maybe even more. Paul heard and believed the words of the Lord to him before what happened next. And some will immediately object. They'll say, but the Lord's promise wasn't fully kept. I mean, he did get attacked, right? I mean, Genesis, or not Genesis, Acts 21, 11, Paul was promised he would be bound and delivered to the Gentiles, and he was. In chapter 21, verses 27 to 32, the Jews were beating Paul, and they only stopped when the Romans arrived on the scene. In chapter 22, verses 22 and 23, the Jews were clamoring and shouting. They're throwing handfuls of dust in the air. It was a symbolic way of saying, let's stone him. And the Romans prepare. They, they come in. They rescue him. They fasten him to a rack and they stretch him out to scourge him. And then he makes the point, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. They all drop the thongs and step back because they know that's a huge problem for them. And then finally, beyond the scope of the Scriptures, we know from tradition that Paul was beheaded by the Romans. So what about this promise that says, no man will attack you in order to harm you? What do you mean? Well, we have to understand it in the context because he immediately adds after that, for I have many people in the city. No one would attack him to harm him because the Lord had many people in that city of Corinth. It's a very similar phrase and wording to what Jesus says in John 10, verse 16. He says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Meaning, the Lord having already predestined many in the city of Corinth for salvation, Paul would know his protection, the Lord's protection, from man's attack until he finished his gospel ministry there. But not only that, Paul was given the promise to know that his ministry would indeed be successful. There would be many souls saved. There would be a church established. Those whom God had chosen must hear the gospel. How? Through a preacher. Who? Paul. 
They must be called to repent. How? Through a preacher, Paul. They must be called to believe and to choose Christ. Listen, the doctrine of election never cancels or removes the biblical responsibility for gospel preaching to call men to believe and repent. Paul had work to do, and he would know God's protection until he was finished that work. You say, what hope and encouragement does that provide for us as the people of God? How does that help us to cope with discouragement and fear and loneliness and weakness in ministry? Listen, just as surely as God had planned and prepared Paul's ministry for him to fulfill promising protection until it was accomplished, so also God has prepared good works for us to do. What's the Bible say? Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would work in them. God has a ministry and works for each of us to do. And until the day of our departure arrives, while we may, along with Paul and countless others, suffer beating and reviling and slander and prison, etc., we will continue in that work protected from lasting harm. You're not out of here until God is finished all the things he's going to do in you. Uh, there's a great scene. Uh, anybody here ever seen the movie Gods and Generals? It's a uh, monster-long kind of a... Uh, not documentary, it's all active, but it's about the Civil War. And one of the characters, Stonewall Jackson, apparently was quite a devout Christian. He was a general on the Confederate side. And in the middle of the battle, one of the first battles called uh, the Battle of Stonewall, I think it is where the name came from, uh, he's on his horse, and he was a big man, great big guy. And he's standing up on his horse, and he's got all these aides. They didn't have, like, cell phone and texting back then. They had young uh, officers would take little notes, and he would write a note, hand to the officer, and he'd bolt off on his horse and give the command to the general, wheel left and charge forward, you know, turn right and charge left, or whatever. They, they would get all kinds of these sort of meshes back and forth. And he's sitting on his horse, and the bullets are like, whoosh, 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 around him. And his little aides are sort of ducking, and they're, and they're going back and forth. End of the battle... They're walking across the battlefield, and Stonewall Jackson is walking along, and he's comforting those who are dying, and he's just grieving over all these loss of life. And finally, his aide says, Sir, I have to ask you a question. He said, What's that? He said, How is it? How is it you can sit on your horse as calm as you are sitting on your front porch rocking, and the bullets are whipping around your head? And he said, Listen. God has fixed the day of my departure. I need not concern myself with that. Until then, these aren't his exact words. This is just my summary of what he said. I watched the movie years ago. But what he basically said was, God's fixed the day of my departure. I don't have to worry about that. My business is to be busy in his business until that day comes. If all soldiers lived in such a light, we would win more battles, was basically what he said. The point is, nobody's out of here until God has finished the work he is doing both in you and through you. And Paul was given this great promise, no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Paul, there's a ministry to do. 
Don't be afraid. Don't stop speaking. Don't be silent. Speak up. Preach the gospel. Get busy. There's people who need to hear the gospel in the city. And as long as you're here preaching, I'm protecting you. What hope is that for us? The simple reality is that God has ministry and works for each of us to do until the day of our departure arrives while we may, along with Paul and countless others, suffer beating and reviling and slander and prison. We will continue in that work protected from lasting harm. We will endure to the end. Nothing will separate you from God's love in Christ. Not the discouragement that you're dealing with. Not the weakness, not the fear that you're surrounded by. It cannot separate you from Christ. What did Paul say? Listen, long passage. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Isn't it great? Paul, forget about the 700,000 immoral pagans. I'm with you. We're going to see it more in a sec. Who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, end quote for a second, or discouragement, or despair, or weakness, or fear, or loneliness, will they separate you from Christ? No. Nothing, nothing is what he says. Back to the text, verse 36. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 8. You already know that. That's Romans 8, the end of the chapter. Nothing. That's Christ's protection. How do we carry on? We know that whatever we're enduring at this moment, whatever God has brought us into and is taking us through the valley of the shadow of dark places, God has a purpose in it. And halfway through, He isn't going to abandon and flee away and leave you to die alone. He is walking through that valley with you. He is with you every step of the way, and he'll be with you right up into glory, and you'll be with him for eternity. So you're with him for all time. Not only that, not only that, just as surely as Paul was promised that he would minister and speak because there are people in that city that would certainly believe because God has chosen them, so also we will continue in our ministry knowing knowing that God will bring fruit from it for his glory. That's a great encouragement, isn't it? Listen, (laughs) we don't preach the gospel in the faint, fleeting hopes that some might believe. 
We preach the gospel in the absolute sure and certain conviction that some will believe. Because God has many people in this city too. How many will believe? I don't have a clue. When will they believe? No idea. That's God's business. But I have the conviction based on Scripture that we preach the gospel and God saves. And what Paul Paul is hearing from the Lord in that vision is, carry on, keep speaking, keep preaching. I've got people in this city. They're going to come to know me through you, Paul. Don't give up. Don't quit. And Paul carried on. A great encouragement for all who are discouraged and downcast, fearful, weak, and enduring much trembling. We be encouraged. We are encouraged in the knowledge of Christ's person. We're encouraged to endure in the knowledge of Christ's protection. And thirdly, we endure knowing the presence of Christ. The earlier part of verse 10, for I am with you. That was the explanation for his command not to be afraid, to go on speaking and not be silent. I'm with you. What a great word of encouragement for our hearts for today. Yes, it's extremely well known. But God in his wisdom knew how much we each needed to be reminded of it. So he repeated it. It's the same words of encouragement that the Lord has been giving his people since the very beginning. In Genesis 26 and verse 24 to Jacob, God said, Fear not, for I am with you. Exodus 3 and verse 12, to Moses, God promises, I will be with you. In Joshua chapter 1 and verse 5, as well as Deuteronomy, Joshua is told by God, as I have been with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you. I will not forsake you. Put yourself in in Joshua's shoes just for a sec. Rebellious and disobedient people that he's been leading for 40 years. He's watched Moses lead them. He's listened to them as they've gathered against him. He's watched rebellions rise and fall against the people, of the people against Moses. But don't forget, when Moses went up Mount Sinai, who went with him? Joshua. When Moses went out to the tent of meeting, out away from the camp of Israel, and all the camp of Israel stood in their tents and worshipped as Moses went out, and God spoke with Moses, who was there? Joshua. When Moses came back from the tent, that, that tent of meeting, back to the people, who stayed behind in the presence of the Lord? Joshua. So when he hears words like, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you, I will not fail you, I will not forsake you, despite this people that I've given you to lead, I'm with you, Joshua. And he was with Joshua every day of his ministry, right to the end. In Judges 6, verse 16, God says to Gideon, Surely I will be with you, and you'll defeat Midian as one man. Midian has gathered a countless number. Not even their camels can be counted in the valleys. And God says, Gideon, you're going to go out, and I'm going to defeat them through you. And he cuts his army from, what, 10,000 down to 300. They can't even count the camels of all the people in the army, and he's got 300. And all they got is clay pots and torches. You remember the story. And God delivered through Gideon. He was with him. In this great verse I memorized years ago, in Isaiah 41.10, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
I came across that verse in a message by John Piper talking about going to Germany and having to learn German to be able to participate in the university activities in Munich. And memorizing that verse and saying it over and over again as he wrestled through doubt and discouragement all through his last, what it was, two, two three years of his PhD. Do not fear. Uh, you notice how similar the words are? Do not fear, for I'm with you. Don't actually look about you, Paul, Nelson, Chris, Edward, all of us. Don't anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And beyond them all, all of those other verses, beyond them, this one in Matthew 28, 20, Jesus gathers his disciples up at the Mount of Ascension in Galilee, and he made this irrevocable promise to them and to us. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age promise of Christ to them stands surely for us for today. As Paul sees and hears the voice of his master, his Savior, and his God, there in Corinth, surrounded by hundreds of thousands of pagan, unbelieving, immoral people, he surely knew he was in the majority. With God on our side, brothers and sisters, never leaving, never forsaking, we outnumber the enemies we face every time. Oh, beloved, how great an encouragement for your soul and for mine. The loneliness of a hospital bed, he is with you. The loneliness of a loveless marriage, he's with you. In the discouragement of a workplace that will not tolerate mention of Christ or the gospel, he's with you. In the discouragement of a mental illness, he's with you. In the discouragement of a family who wants nothing to do with Christ, who consider you to have lost your mind to follow Jesus, he's with you. Whatever you go through, he's with you. So how do we continue to labor? How do we continue through life despite the weakness, the fear, and the trembling? we continue knowing the person of Christ and Him crucified, not only as a content of our gospel, but as the intimate friend for life and eternity. We continue knowing the protection of Christ, that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ. The good works He's prepared for us, we will finish. We continue knowing the presence of Christ, that He is with us no matter where we go, he abides with us as we abide in him. And Paul did. He endured. He labored on. He was obedient to what the Lord commanded in verses 9 and 10. And although he may still have had moments of fear, yet he continued to speak. He did not fall silent. He did not quit his ministry. Paul continued to labor even through weakness and fear and trembling. Beloved, the work of ministry is not the ease of ministry nor the rest of ministry. It's a labor of ministry and a labor of love. Paul says exactly this in 1 Thessalonians 2, 8 and 9. Having so fond an affection, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of Christ, but our whole lives, our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden, we proclaim the gospel of God. He carried on. He kept going. Same in Colossians 1.29. For this purpose also I labor, 
striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I've had for you and those in Laodicea. And Paul's commanded Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse 5, to be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So, beloved, what's the message for us today? For all of us who are enduring weakness and fear and discouragement and doubts and loneliness, Christ is with you. Don't give up. Pick up your cross, put it back where it belongs, and keep going. Christ is protecting you. Nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. Nothing. We carry on knowing the person of Christ. Because you know, beloved, we're not following someone who has no idea what these things are like. We're following the one who is called by Scripture the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We're following the one who went to a cross. And when every one of us who have to go through that, and some of us I think will, we will know the presence of Christ every moment. The, the martyrs, I have a, a passionate love for the English Reformation and the Puritans and, and the things that they endured. And you read about the stories of one after the other that were burned at the stake. Uh, Queen Mary, I believe, some burned some 300 of them at the stake. Many of them went to the stake singing hymns. Like I told you about Ridley and Latimer, one shouted to the other as the flames began to climb up. They were, they were burned side by side. Courage, Brother Ridley, tonight we feast with the king as they were being burned. They knew the presence of Christ with them all through those hours. But Jesus, the one we follow, the one we love and serve did not go through his in that unbroken fellowship with the Father. He would cry from the depths of his soul halfway through, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken by the Father that we might never be forsaken by Christ. He was abandoned for a time on the cross that we would never be abandoned in this life. God the Father pulled back His protection away from the Son and poured out all of His fury and anger and righteous indignation at us for our sin on Him. He did not know the protection all the way through to the end. In fact, He had to endure something that no other human being will ever endure before or since and in the future. How do we keep going? We keep going in the knowledge of the person and the work of Christ. We keep going in the protection of God that nothing will separate us. And we keep going in the presence of Christ because he is with us all through this journey. What a great Savior we have. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we'll go to the Lord's table. Let's pray. 
Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we bow in worship. For you are the Almighty, most holy, all-knowing, unchanging God of the universe. The one who created all of existence with the words of his mouth. The one who spoke it all into existence. The one who knows every detail of each of us right down to and beyond the subatomic particles, but knows and understands and is uses the greatest stars in the galaxies as playthings. You know them all by name. Father, to stop and just comprehend, to try and comprehend for a moment who you are. To know that you know us. You know every single detail about us. You know all the things that plague our thinking and give us trouble after trouble and disturbance after disturbance. Father, we give thanks that you are indeed taking us through those things. But Father, we praise you. We stand in awe and wonder and thanksgiving this morning that you are taking us through those things. You have not abandoned us to them. Father, we give thanks. We praise you, O God, The one day that faith will give way to sight and we will know, we will see him. We'll know him as he is in the glory of his person. Oh, Father, we want to tell you this morning how much we love the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, the one who endured so much that we would be set free, the one who endured so much suffering in his own heart and mind on the cross that we might know the comfort of his presence, that we may know the assurance of his protection, that we might know him. Oh, Father, I plead with you. I cry out to you on behalf of every single person standing in this room right now. Oh, God, we pray. I pray that you would make yourself ever more deeply known to them, that they would know you as Paul did and as Moses did. Father, I pray that our knowledge, our understanding, not just facts and figures, but our relationship with Christ would greatly increase. Father, I pray that as the difficulties, the persecution comes, and Father, we are are certain that it will, and it's not far away. Father, I pray that we will stand that test, not in any strength of our own, and the strength that Christ supplies. Father, again, those words come back to mind that Paul Raj read to us at the very beginning of this service. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Father, we lift up our hands and our hearts and our voices in worship this morning. We give thanks, O God, for the salvation we have in Christ. We give thanks, O God, that you are our strength every single day. And you are the song that we sing all along the way. Father, we give thanks. And we do so in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.